It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here at Colorado Springs. I certainly hope you had a very Merry Christmas. We are continuing in part two of our study of the cast of Christmas. Now, I know many of you might still be in the midst of your celebrations or having just wrapped them up. Uh, I don't know how your family structure is this year. We certainly had to break up uh, many of our family celebrations and so it stretched it out almost like a Hanukkah, which we were just celebrating not only our time with family, but hopefully for you and certainly for our home, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. This is the season in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I hope your celebration has been a blessed one. Last week, we examined the first part of the cast of Christmas, looking at the shepherds, the time of year in which Jesus Christ would have been born, even the location of Jesus' birth. And some of the aspects of census and the birthday celebrations and so forth. So if you miss that broadcast, you can find it at calvaryfountain.com. And I encourage you to listen again and share it with all your friends and family. Get the word out. Let's tell the story of the birth of Jesus Christ from a historical account and from all the data that even supports the science of it all and the archaeology and so forth. It's all there, and it all supports the truth claims of the Bible that is absolute truth, and it can give us a bedrock for our faith. So let's pick up here in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 4, Matthew chapter 2, in our story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the Great, Herod the King, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, you note the arrival of these wise men. It it startled the whole city. It wasn't Herod alone who was troubled by their arrival and their message. Not only was their message a vital one, but how they were signaled was something of great importance. Let's first begin our journey here today talking a little bit about Herod. All right, we talked a great deal about the shepherds last week. Let's examine Herod now. Now, this is Herod the Great, and he ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, any study of Herod will immediately show that the man was a ruthless and paranoid tyrant. I mean, he would easily kill his own sons or one of his wives or even the high priest if he thought that any of these were in any way conspiring against him. And they used to say it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Okay, he was not Jewish, but he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. So therefore, there is a family link. The wise men may have come from a land that was antagonistic to Rome, and so their visit raised a lot of questions. I mean, if you think about it, when you look at the historical records of these things, I can ask you right now, and unfortunately I can't hear from you in person, but what was the longest war that was ever recorded in history? Let me just give you some examples. The Reconquista, which was a Spanish and Portuguese war, that was fought with the Islamic State as they tried to advance into Europe between 718 A.D. into 1492 A.D. 
And that war lasted 774 years. And, and that was a period that overlapped with the Ottoman Empire's efforts to seize Europe from the east. So any idea what the second longest war ever recorded in history was? The Roman-Persian Wars. Okay, now these lasted from 92 B.C. to 627 A.D. That's more than 700 years of battles. And that means these wise men were traveling into enemy-occupied territory and willing to risk their lives at the hands of the Romans to seek out the Messiah. Kind of changes the narrative a little bit for you, I hope. Let's continue reading here. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now let's go deeper and examine this text a little further. So they're following a star, and I put that in quotes here, to Bethlehem. These wise men traveled to Jerusalem to look for the Messiah. So who were these wise men? Now, the tradition that these men were three kings and that their names have been preserved for all of us has no foundation in biblical history at all. Again, you could check out the facts for many good Bible dictionary, if you would, and looking under Magi, as they have been called, you probably find that these were a priestly caste, a very wise men, if you will, from the Mesopotamian Valley, somewhere in the east of the boundaries of Israel. Now, the God-given boundaries of Israel, which was anything east of the Euphrates River, perhaps then this would point to Persia, which would be Iran, or Babylonian areas, which was Iraq, were not told specifically. So remember, the Euphrates was often called the eastern boundary, according to Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, and Deuteronomy 1, 7, Joshua 1, and 1 Kings chapter 4. So this river goes from Turkey all the way down through Iraq. And God said that this river was the boundary marker for Israel and that the land from the Nile all the way for, to the Euphrates would belong to Israel, according to Genesis 15, 18. But that would be occupied also by other people groups. And let me just read that to you, Genesis 15, 18. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So these boundaries will be reiterated again in Exodus chapter 23 and Numbers 34. So since the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians during the time of Daniel, many believe it's reasonable to suggest here that they may have been Persians. Now, the, the term wise men appears 44 times in the Bible, and the meaning varies somewhat depending on the context. I mean, the first mention of wise men is in the account of Jacob's son Joseph 
in Genesis chapter 41, verse 8, where it says that Pharaoh called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Okay, so the Hebrew word is haham, and haham means intelligent, skillful, artful, or cunning. Okay, so you can see here that there's a clear delineation from this text of those who were practicing magic from those who were simply seeking knowledge and wisdom. In fact, the greatest collection, the the largest library collection in the world at that time had been put together in Alexandria, Egypt. They were knowledge seekers. So this same word is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament, except in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, the word used as the original language is hahamim, which is a root corresponding to haham. Now, it's, what I mean by that is that the first use of these wise men is mentioned by Daniel chapter 2, verse 12. At, at this time, at that moment when it was used, wise men apparently consisted of three different types of men. They were either astronomers, as we see in Isaiah 48, 13, Chaldeans, which is used to reference the the Babylonians in general, or that Babylonian era or area of of people, or even soothsayers who would often be the fortune tellers. So in Greek, in the New Testament, three different words are translated as wise men. Magos, which is the same root word there as hacham, is this individual who was seeking knowledge, okay? So although the word magic is derived from this magi, there were different words that were used for that. I mean, in another Greek word, for example, for magicians, those who practice sorcery, the Greek word there is magio, very different word, same root though. And, and, And so these individuals were not that. They were not magicians. They were learners. They observed the movements of stars and planets and and were documenting everything. They were the Google at that time, right? If the king had to ask them a question, they had better be ready to give an answer, okay? So these Persian wise men, how would they have known about the Jewish Messiah? Okay, now undoubtedly, they would have been exposed to the writings of the Jewish prophet Daniel, who had been the chief of the court of seers in Persia. If we go back to Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 26, there's a prophecy that gives a timeline even of the birth of the Messiah. It was all right there. I mean, if you remember the prophet Balaam, he was from the town of Pethor, which is of uh, near the Euphrates River near Persia, according to Numbers chapter 22, verse 5. Balaam's prophecy specifically mentioned a star and a scepter rising out of Jacob. Let's look at that for a moment. Numbers 24, in fact, let's read this prophecy of Balaam. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, capital H, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So I find it very interesting that God used Balaam the same Balaam whom God used a donkey to speak to in Numbers 22 to give this prophecy. In fact, Balaam was devising evil in his heart to conspire against with Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of the Moabites, to curse Israel. But God said to him in Numbers 22:35 that the words he would speak would be God's words instead, and that is exactly what happens. After seven attempts to curse Israel, only blessings come out of his mouth. <laughs> I love that. 
So not only did these wise men know the prophecy of Balaam, I suspect, it's quite possible that they may have also known the location, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem. Now, it's that's suspect a little bit because it seems, well, they had to go to Herod to ask for instruction, but it doesn't mean that they were familiar with Bethlehem. They may have known that it was going to be in that region. The star had been leading in this way, but Bethlehem was off the beaten path. I mean, it was insignificant as far as the Romans were concerned. It was located five to six miles south of Jerusalem, and only about 600 people lived there. So it really wasn't something of, of great interest for many. I mean, even though King David was most likely born there, as you may recall, Ruth arrived in Bethlehem and she married Boaz, the kinsman of Milan, and she gave birth to Obed, who would become the great grand, or become the grandfather of David. But even today, Bethlehem is sealed off in the West Bank and tourists only go in and out to see the place of what they believe to be the nativity location. So it's safe to say that they had been studying the prophecies but may have not known or had all 355 prophecies at their disposal since they were most likely from Persia. Now, the book of Numbers, this is interesting. It was written around 1440 BC, Micah around 700 BC, and Daniel around 550 BC. And I suspect that because of the testimony of Daniel, his bold devotion to God and his counsel to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus— and his willingness to save the wise men of Babylon. If you recall that story in Daniel chapter 2, 24, you got to remember that Nebuchadnezzar was angry that no one could interpret his dream, so he ordered that all the wise men be executed. And Daniel said, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation that all of those factors may have created a platform for generations of wise men to follow in the footsteps of Daniel. So when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, according to Proverbs 16, 7. I mean, what a testimony. So I find it interesting that God revealed to these wise men of Persia where to find the Messiah. Now, aside from the influence of Daniel, why do you think the Persians would care so much about the prophecies given by Yahweh. I mean, it was Persia under King Cyrus that helped the Jews return to Israel and rebuild the temple. I mean, Cyrus is a king mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible and is identified as Cyrus the Great. Also Cyrus II or Cyrus the Elder, who reigned over Persia between 539 to 530 BC. Now, in one of the most amazing prophecies of the Bible, Isaiah predicts Cyrus's decree to free the Jews, listen to this, 150 years before Cyrus lived and reigned. So the prophet Isaiah calls him by name and gives details of Cyrus's benevolence to the Jews. Listen to this from Isaiah 45, 1 and 4. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I will take hold of to subdue nations before him. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. So <laughs> this, this goes on even Isaiah uh, 41, 2 to 25 and 42, 6. So it, here he's acknowledging Isaiah, the sovereignty over all nations. And God says of Cyrus in Isaiah 44, 28, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. Do you not see how awesome that is? I mean, if you found your name written in a book, 
giving details of what you would do and the nation you would lead, an entire empire that didn't even exist at the time that book was written. It was dated 150 years or more before you were even born. Would you not be shaken to your knees just a little bit? That's how awesome the Word of God is. Cyrus's decree releasing the Jewish people in fulfillment of prophecy is then recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, 22-33. Excuse me, 22-23. to You ready for another twist here? What is the primary nation of Persia known as today? Iran. And it occupied much of Iraq at that time as well. So God used the founder, Cyrus the Great, of the Persian Empire known as Iran today to release the Jews from captivity so they could return to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem and their temple. God used Balaam, a prophet of modern-day Syria today, to speak blessings over Israel. And then he used an Iranian king to help the Jews rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. God then used wise men from the region known as Iraq today to come and worship and declare the Messiah from the tribe of Judah, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, all playing a part in the blessings of the Israelites and glorifying their God and the Messiah. That, I believe, is a foreshadowing of Isaiah chapter 60 when the nations would worship the God of Israel and kings would come from around the world, even on camels, and bring gold and incense. I mean, Isaiah 60 is a future revealed of the glorious state of the world under the reign of Jesus Christ. So there is duality demonstrated in the birth of Christ and his coming reign. That means that men will once again come to visit Jesus and bring him gold and incense. I mean, God can use anyone to bring himself glory. Our God reigns. Now, something motivated these Gentiles to find the hope of mankind that was being revealed throughout the surrounding nations and through 355 prophecies of the coming Messiah. They were driven to find him and to worship him. In fact, it's possible that they traveled at least 430 miles, a trip that would have taken at least a minimum of 30 days at that time or longer. I mean, I wonder if we have the same drive and determination pulsing through our veins when we go to church on a Sunday morning. I mean, these guys were so determined they would travel through rough terrain for 430 miles just to find the Messiah. And yet we might have a church around the corner and we'll struggle to get up and get to church to make an appointment with God and to worship him. I mean, the shepherds came to the manger in Luke chapter 2, 8 to 10, but the wise men came to the house where Mary and Joseph were staying to visit him. That may have taken place sometime between day two or even up to a year or two later before the family fled to Egypt. So it seems to be an, an initial visitation that was reserved for the shepherds. And I, I trust the Lord in that. He wanted those shepherds to be there first, before the wise men would get there. I mean, shepherding in the terms of leadership appears 173 times in the Bible. So God seems to have a real soft spot for those who are called shepherds, those who are often looked down in society, and he raises them up, and he wants them to bear witness to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this also brings up another question. I mean, how long before the wise men arrived? As I just mentioned, just uh, after a day or two later, maybe between day two all the way up to two years later, how long do we speculate it took for these wise men then to arrive on the scene? Were they there at the birthday 
of Jesus or maybe a few days later? Well, Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day in the temple, and Mary completed her purification on the 40th day. And you can read that from Luke chapter 2, even Leviticus 12. You can also see Numbers 18. So after these things, they returned back to Nazareth. We read that in Luke 2.39, where we read, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Now, however, we're told in Matthew 2.13 that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and they departed to Egypt instead until Herod dies, fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea 11.1. So this infuriated Herod, and he orders all the young boys ages two and under to be killed in Bethlehem, according to Matthew 2, 16 and 18, fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 15. So this is why some suspect that Jesus may have been a little bit older when the wise men arrived, but most likely no older than 24 months since Herod will die in 4 B.C. And later, Jesus and his family will then eventually return to Nazareth, as the Bible states in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. So in my own humble opinion here, Luke chapter 239 tells us that after Joseph and Mary had fulfilled the requirements of the law, they departed. So how long would it take to fulfill the requirements of the law? Well, they wouldn't have needed to stay any longer than 41 days in Bethlehem, according to Leviticus 12, 3 to 4. So I suspect that Jesus was still very much a baby when the wise men arrived, but probably not much older than a month. Now, let's look at another side of this with the wise men. How many of them were there? Okay, the tradition, we talk about the we three kings from Orient are. Well, the the tradition says that there were three, but the Bible never tells us that. We assume that because of the number of gifts that there must have been three, gold and incense and myrrh that are presented by these wise men. Many see some symbolism in that. They see that these each have a symbolic meaning, that gold was a gift for a king, incense was for the deity of Jesus, the myrrh was a preparation for his suffering. Matthew nor Luke really give us those symbolic imageries there. So we just have to be very careful not to imply that they're there, but but there probably is a very important reason, as I just mentioned, for why those particular gifts. I mean, there's there's always symbolism in Scripture, but we just have to be so cautious in that. So I find it interesting that our main characters, whom God uses mightily, seem to enter Bethlehem with little to nothing. I mean, from the story of Naomi and Ruth to Joseph and Mary, these are individuals who could easily feel like God had abandoned them. And certainly Naomi felt that God's hand was against her when the reality was very different. Though these individuals were the least of these in the eyes of men, they were chosen by God, and their stories are standing stones throughout time. Let's uh, In our brief time that we have left here, let's look exactly to the star now. That's another aspect of the birth of Jesus, this star. The Greek word translated star in the text is, is aster which is a normal word that's used for a star or celestial body. And it's used 24 times in the New Testament. It can be used to denote angels as well, as such as what we see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. The aster seems to refer to fallen angels who followed Satan's rebellion. But the basic rules of biblical interpretation state that we should take the normal use of a word unless there's compelling evidence to suggest otherwise, such as a pronoun that's used for the star, he 
or she, or if whatever example, it was scripturally, we only see he's as angels. So since we're told that there was an angel that spoke to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, 8 to 20, along with a multitude of heavenly hosts that praised God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, we should be careful to anything that might suggest that this star is also an angel. Since Luke was specific to identify the angel, but not the angel, and but not the star in the similar verbiage as the angel. So many Bible scholars suggest a natural explanation for the star of Bethlehem. I mean, their theories range from a supernova to a comet to alignment of planets. I mean, something in the heavens provided a brighter than normal light in the sky. However, there is evidence to suggest that the star of Bethlehem was not a natural stellar phenomenon. Uh, Let me just give you examples here. First, The fact that the star of Bethlehem seemed to appear only to the Magi indicates that this was no ordinary star. Okay, that's our clue number one. Clue number two is that celestial bodies normally move from east to west due to the Earth's rotation. Yet the star of Bethlehem led the Magi from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. So not only that, it led them directly to the place where Joseph and Mary were staying and then stopped overhead. That's not a natural stellar phenomenon that any of us are familiar with. So if the normal usage of the word star doesn't fit the context here, and it probably isn't a reference to an angel, then what is it? Well, the star of Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12 was likely, and this is my opinion, a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah, which literally means dwelling of God, was the visible presence of the Lord. So prior to this, the most notable appearance of the Shekinah was the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. The Shekinah can obviously lead people to specific locations. And it was seen later in connection with Christ's ministry in Matthew 17, 5 at the transfiguration and of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, 9. It shouldn't surprise us that God would use a miraculous sign then to signal the advent of his son into the world. I believe that's probably our natural takeaway of what this star really was. It was the Shekinah of God himself pointing the way to his son, now birthed on earth in flesh to give us hope. The most amazing gift that was ever given to mankind And it is free to all who would receive it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord in a spirit of repentance will be saved. And brothers and sisters, I hope during this Christmas season you weren't so fixated on all the presents and family gatherings that you forgot to celebrate Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're doing here today. I hope you've been encouraged by all that we've studied of the cast of Christmas part one and two over the last couple weeks here on Engage in Truth. If you'd like to re-listen to these broadcasts and share them with your friends and family, go to calvaryfountain.com. You can learn more about our, our ministry there of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church here in Colorado Springs. We would love to see you there. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sunday, and we have services throughout the week. God bless you, my friend.